Hey there, and welcome to the, uh, you know, the next installment of We Been Had, where we discuss or even debate albums for your listening pleasure. I'm Keith Billy. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, the deal, of course, is that we take turns picking an album, and then we both dig into it. Uh, it was my pick this time, and I chose Achtung Baby by U2, and, uh, you know, I guess... And everybody listening, uh, thank you for attending my therapy session here. I think this is gonna excellent. We're, I'm we're, excited for this already. This is gonna be uh, in a heart of darkness, but in my head. Fun fact: Keith only picks records that are rated B plus or above by the Calgary Herald. <laughs> that's. I mean, a man has to have standards. Standards. And that's you know. I, I chose the Calgary Herald because it was, of course. In Calgary, that Wolverine was uh, dressed like a cowboy. It for whatever reason the Wikipedia entry has all like Rolling Stone, Spin, and then it has the Calgary Herald rating. It's important, I, you know. Like you ignore the Canadian press at yeah, it's a, the touchstone of North America. Calgary. Exactly. Yes, if you've lost Calgary, you've lost Middle America. Um, throw in some quick Tombstone, really. Yeah. Tombstone information on the album. It was released 1991 on Island Records. It was produced by Daniel. I've always thought this was pronounced Lanois, but I've never actually. Let's let's French it up. Let's yeah. go with Lanois. Let's, you know, if, if if I'm wrong, I'll be consistently wrong. And uh, and Brian Eno um, recorded at Hansa Studios in Berlin, which we'll get back to, and then. Another studio in Dublin that I neglected to write down the name of, because I'm a fool. Um, usually I throw in a description of the album, but in this case, I think if you're listening to the show, you know what this album sounds like. There's no... Yeah, I think if you were if you were between a pretty specific age group, this, this is an album that you owned. Yeah, this is just... This was another of the 90s ubiquities. Um... Before we get rolling, I guess I wanted to just throw a, a listening disclaimer in. Uh, I know that a lot of people who listen to the show, uh, whose taste I absolutely respect, like uncomplicatedly like you too, and um, whatever I say here, I don't want to be shitting on anyone's liking for you too. I've got pretty complicated feelings about you too, and uh, you know that that's gonna be the show. But unless it's Eric Clapton or Ryan Adams, I, I never want to talk anyone out of liking anything. Uh, history has kind of proven you right on the Ryan Adams front. Like. <laughs> I just I just wish I could claim that I was right for the right reasons, and you know, not just. Yeah, I mean, do you hate like even Cream era, Eric Clapton? I don't. Um, well, there's some songs like. That anyone for tennis song just fucking sucks, like regardless of all other context. But yeah, I mean in, anything off of Twenty Four Nights. I mean those guys can go fucking pound sand. <laughs> I I think <sighs> Derek and the Dominoes is like the last Clapton involved thing that I will go to bat for, and you know even then like it's wonderful tonight. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, get, I'm uh, getting that. It's <laughs> fucking awful. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> so I've been talking a lot. Um, what what's your what's your 
30,000-foot overview <laughs> relationship with this album. Yeah, so I was kind of reflecting on this. Um, I think in sort of the spectrum of U2 fandom, uh, I was probably more on the tepid end than yeah. uh, a lot of my friends. Um, I, For me, I think Under a Blood Red Sky was kind of my touchstone U2 album. I know this is that for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, I they kind of lost me uh, right after this album. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I maybe I, I wasn't mature enough to go the Zeropa route. You couldn't handle their European sophistication. I could not. I could not. Uh, you know, one of the things just it was really interesting. You know, for a while I tried to get into Rattle and Hum because I really liked that scene in the movie where the Harlem Gospel Choir performed. Yeah. And like for a while that was like I'm like oh this is a really good album. Unfortunately, I don't think that mine is paying. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's. I in in fact, I think this album is what it is because they knew that that was not a good album, and I I wanted so hard to like it too. I feel like same. I, yeah. I feel like I gave it all the chances in the world, yeah. um, and it just it's just not very good. I don't know. No, that's that is the bottom line. The movie is better than the album. Yes, the movie's got some good shit. Like. The version of Sunday Bloody Sunday in the movie, I think, is like the best rendition of that song that I've seen. Um, but yeah, so. So after reading that book about the Troubles, does that give you any more context to that song? Kinda. It, it makes me. It. It. What am I trying to say? It helps me calibrate my respect for Bono at kind of a low point I guess um, but but I also kind of understand it I so I my specific thing with that like okay this is jumping many guns but one of my beefs with Bono is that I think he really wants to be seen as this like messianic political peacemaker who um, you know who's gonna use his powers to make the world better and I feel like Sunday Bloody Sunday feels like a song that started out with a specific point of view that has just been slowly walked back and back and back, um, you know, to render it less. And, you know, it, it goes from, like, I am angry about a specific thing that happened to, like, uh, I feel like it's been fronted now to more like, oh, I hate it when people are unpleasant to each other. Um, I might be misreading that. I might be uncharitable, but... Yeah, you know, reading about like what was actually going on in the troubles and what you know what I don't know just I it feels to me like he was like white hot mad about a bombing when he wrote the song and then you know it just withered away. Yeah, it just is it it sort of I don't know growing up in America, you know like I knew loosely about the troubles, I guess. No. Yeah. Um you know I was sort of grossly misinformed by Tom Clancy, but that's a different story. Um, you know, I, I think it just, it, it is, it, it is something that was like, you know, on, on both sides was like a white hot thing. I mean, clearly it's like, yeah. you know, white hot to the point of a body count, right. like a large yeah, exactly. body count. Um, but not to, you know, just, just to lighten it back up a little bit. 
I read the, and I just I'm curious to get your reaction on the. I read the Greg Cott. I know you you really respect Greg Cott's work and you're really a fan of his. Um, this was his. These were his thoughts okay. that he felt this album shows the band in a grittier light, disrupting rather than fulfilling expectations. And this is U2's. This U2 sound is punkier than it has been since Boy. I, I, I don't think I have a problem with any of that. Um, I think I do think that there was a thing going on that you know they were uh, Joshua Tree happened and they were like so lauded as like the perfect band that they got into like the dangerous artistic territory uh, where no one will say no to you and like every idea seems good and you know so rattle and hum happens and it's just this fucking poorly conceived poorly executed thing and i respect them for having the sense to be like okay this isn't fucking working we gotta rip it down to studs and rebuild um you know and make like this album that you know intentionally disrupts the expectations and intentionally does go to a a grittier thing and you know I, i think that was like you could say that was a calculated move, but it was like a smart calculation. Like, like I, it's funny because they were chasing David Bowie to the extent of using his studio or you know, using the studio and producer where he did his best work you know, with this. Um, you know, but he's another person where like everything he did was calculated, but it was calculated to good effect. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I get more of a, and I, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't this language didn't exist when the record came out but i almost get like a proto lcd sound system type vibe yeah i think that's legit or it's like a it's like kind of a it's sort of a a simple beat with someone singing over the top of it and then some like electronica elements mixed in yeah that's that's not something i would have put together but i think you're totally right i so i mean there's there's kind of this there's this entire personal side of this that like you know when uh, it's just like some combination of timing of like when the album came out and you know when the critical faculties of my brain happened to like actually start working and you know when fucking information made it through rural Nebraska but like this thing dropped right as I was really starting to pay attention to music. So this is like the album that I've spent the most time in my life contemplating. Like when I was, you know, my senior year of high school and first year of undergrad, I was just the biggest fucking U2 super fan in the world. Um, flag planted particularly on this album. I would just like sit in my freshman dorm and like... Zeropa flag or... Or Octung. Oh, okay. I, I thought Zeropa... Like, it's just hilarious to me thinking about this now. I thought Zuropa was disappointing because they were listening to Brian Eno too much, and Brian Eno was a bad influence. And, like, like I don't know where the fuck I got that. But but I was, you know, dead set. Um, I don't know, you know. And, like, like then, like, after I, after I got into punk, like, I, I figured out this big part of punk is apostasy. You know, like, you have to, like theatrically throw away some part of your old life and like like for me that was like U2 and R.E.M. I was just like yeah fuck them that's that's wuss music um 
you know, and that was like this identity thing of like, I, I hate this now. And, you know, it's been this slow recovery of like, well, you know, I like R.E.M. and I like some U2. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you described it as wuss music because like most of the themes that I find in punk rock songs are like, almost identical to what you what what is on octane baby right? yeah it hits all the like you know like teenage slash mid-20s like you know like things that are going on with with at least with me when i yeah. was that age yeah and and i also i think that uh, i do think that there's like this very driving urge within you too to emulate the clash um to the point where i think part of part of why rattle and hum happened i think Rattle and Hum was partly an attempt to badly remake. They're not remake like London, London Calling, Calling, but like yeah. do their own London Calling. Uh, so yeah, like it's especially funny that I'm like, no. That is that is interesting that you're. I mean, if that if that's the record that defined you for the period, I mean, it could be worse. It could have been like, you know, like Roll the Bones by Rush <laughs> or something, which I yeah. think came on around the same time. I, I owned it, you know, back then. I, I think I. I defended it a little bit. Good luck. Yeah. I went out there and rocked and rolled the bones. <laughs> Roll the bones. Um, no, but I mean, so like, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but uh, I was I was such, such a fucking U2 super fan that my senior year, like my senior year of high school was all fucked up. Um, I had all this free time. So I ended up doing an independent study with... Uh, the like honors English teacher at Blair. It was supposed to be an independent study of poetry, but all I did was just a semester of deconstructing the lyrics on Octoing Baby and like handing in these papers. And I just, I remember like horrifying this woman by handing in a paper that was a pretty good paper um, about all of the references to oral sex on Octoing Baby. <laughs> and it's just so like, I'm trying to be the. The intellectual bad boy of Blair Nebraska. That's, that's fantastic. I I mean, do you still have any of that work product? Is that still no? But but I still hear like every time I listen to this record, I'm like, oh, there it goes. That's uh, wow. I'm I'm amazed that they <laughs> did, a they accepted that as like. I, yeah, I don't know that. that. That, that, that woman was very sporting. Yeah, she's yeah, a very a trooper. Very fair-minded teacher. So uh, is the honors English class in Blair, was it just like you? I was, you know... <laughs> no, it was... So you there, Joel? <laughs> there, there were a lot of very smart kids in that class, and none of them live in Blair anymore. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them live in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um... Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Do you want to... Yeah, uh, so this is going to be controversial, and I apologize early if I'm shitting on your childhood. No. Uh, but I like the beginning of Zoo Station and nothing else about it. I think that's pretty fair. That I, yeah, I, you know, I read somewhere that they intentionally, they wanted it to sound like something was broken, and like they wanted this... To provoke the sense of like, what the fuck is going on here? And like, they did a good job with that. Like, I literally had that reaction. Yeah, I mean, that it's like half of it's like a sound of banging metal. Yeah. Which is, I guess, if you're trying to 
you know, if you're trying to go for off-putting, track one, which is a bold yeah. choice. Well, I mean, I think it's it, they kind of considering what they were trying to do. You know, if they're if they are deliberately saying like we are not the band who made the Joshua Tree. I mean, we are, but that's not all. All we are like. You do kind of have to like step up big up front and say like no no no. There's... Yeah, but does it have to be like a bizarro thing where you're like recast Todd Rundgren as having a metal bowl <laughs> and just like banging on it? Like, does that have to? Like, can't you just do like a William Shatner thing where you do like like just you know read some shitty poem or something to start the, the album? I don't know. I I'm really struck too. So I mean, like, so here's here's like the ongoing mixed feelings I have about this is like I really do like this record, um, and I, I I think I like this song more than you. And I you know I I don't fault them for having to like overdo things to you know to sell the new personas or whatever, but like. At the same time, like, it's so, like, hey, did you know that we recorded this in Berlin? Did you know there's a there's a subway stop called Zoo Station in Berlin where we recorded this? Uh, but, but, I don't know, but then they had to. Like, there's this thing where, like, it's the opposite of being, like, Midwestern understated, but you also wouldn't have a good record if, if it was recorded, like, Midwestern understated style. True. Um, you know, I mean, I, this is a, an aside, but I mean, I think you could do a you could do a pretty cool record with all just subway stations. I mean, there's a subway <laughs> station in London called Cockfosters. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a great song, no matter what you do. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I I guess I had never read the lyrics to Zoo Station. The whole like ready to duck, ready to dive. Yeah. Ready to say, glad to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> so, let me run a theory by you here, and this is like, I guess this is a, a you know this was part of my apostasy, and then like maybe reacceptance. Um, I think Bono has a great, great voice. Like the guy can really For sing, sure. really knows how to use his voice as an instrument, but his lyrics are pretty bad a lot of the time like on this album like there's a lot most songs you will look and be like really what yeah i mean that's an interesting observation from someone who got likely college credit for (laughs) for dissecting the album as poetry Um, i'm speaking from the authority of a blair high school diploma here man um but yeah, I mean, I think for me, I mean, what Bono does really well is he sings, you know, he lets, he leans on his voice to make really good pop songs. Yeah. Like, that's what he excels at. Yeah. And, you know, and there's elements of that here, but I mean, I think the next song really shows you where he can shine, right? Well, where let's, you, let's move on to that next song. I, I mean, I think that, like, guitar pop, the guitar-driven pop is really where you like. That's where you get the Bono that that I like. The you know, like I think that this is this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Really? And only be, and even because it was like, even though it was like played into the dirt by radio. Yeah. Like I think it it really, like I really like the guitar part where they like kind of kind of holds the guitar notes like a half a beat longer than you think they should. Yeah. And you're like, like I don't know. It just it. 
it creates this like weird tension for me. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot. Uh, so like, one of the things that makes this whole record work, I think, is it's really well just arranged. You know, with like what you know, the, the edge is rarely just like hitting a chord like. You know, it's all these little lines that fit in together and have been thought about, and like it's just fucking stellar all the way through. Um, I so I actually recognized even better than the real thing. There's like three at least songs on this record where the main guitar riff is just the uh, two notes that are like an octave of the same note, and like. You know, for a while I was like, I kind of condescended to that, like, oh, he's got one fucking trick. But at the same time, like, it's the other way around that, like, that's one trick, and you know, he's got this, the fly, and mysterious ways are all based on that trick, and they don't sound anything like each other. And like, that's you're doing something right with the guitar if you can do that. Well, I mean, I think that's what's that's what kind of makes made like a lot of Bob Dylan songs are like just one or two notes that yeah. are that are sort of and i mean with him it's using your voice as kind of a an instrument yeah but yeah i uh i just as you and we can talk more when we get to the fly but uh i have this distinct memory of walking down the, the high school hall and one of my uh, one of my friends is like hey i just got the new u2 album you got to hear this track called the fly and I'm like, and just like thinking about it, like that's the one that he decided to highlight. Like that was his, that was his jam. That's, we will come to see. That's a choice I respect. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the same, the same guy worked at the Kmart in Minnetonka and uh, was really excited because he found a pair of like Bono sunglasses at Kmart that he that he wore for like two years. I I had a pair of those. Freshman year at Morris, and I was fucking obnoxious with them. <laughs> it's a tough look to pull off. I it feel is like. a tough look to pull off. Uh, so one thing that's with even better than the real thing that I I just fucking adore. Um, back in in high school, you know, in like Max lyrics deconstruction mode, our friend Joel pointed out to me one time that he, you know, we were listening to this, and he's just like, you know. I think this song's about porn or masturbation. I'm like, uh, maybe, I don't know. You know, and then uh, we're watching MTV a little bit later and the video comes on and there's there's like this dude in a VR headset just like making out with a woman, um, you know, and I'm like, okay, I guess, you know, I guess you're right, Joel. That is at least one of the things they're talking about. But then today, I was like, I was trying to remember that. I'm typing up my show notes. I'm like, okay, Joel and I said that. That that happened. And I figured I'd better look at the video, you know, to confirm that there really is a man. In a, and, and there is. And it looks like, it looks like Aquaman's arch-villain on the Super Friends, you know, like the, what was it, the Black Manta or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. It looks like him, um, just as a VR headset, making out with a woman. Fantastic. But, <laughs> but the rest of the video is... Just kind of this amazing time capsule because it's like these close-ups of Bono with this spinny cam. And then there's a, a harsh cut to the Beatles. And then a cut to Bono again with the spinny cam. Cut to the edge. Cut to Bono. Cut to Prince. Um, and just like this, you know, it again is like this willful conflation of like 
<laughs> have we told you who our peers are? Our peers are the Beatles and Prince. And yeah, that's that, that's a little. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. There's so a touch of humility. <laughs> that's that is what is missing. And then the, the other element of the video that I love is then they'll also occasionally cut to uh, Mullen and Clayton, and they both just look fucking pissed and miserable to be there. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like a window into something. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I did read that that there was like a lot of turmoil in the band during this period because they were kind of felt like they were all going in different musical directions. Yeah. And I mean, if that's the case, I I feel like you know that soup kind of made a those ingredients made a soup that was really good. Like Paid they, off. You know, that's you know often you get the whole like. You know, I'm gonna do my three tracks that are gonna be, you know, that are gonna be uh, skiffle, and then you can do your three tracks of new metal. Yeah, suddenly you've got the the Kiss solo projects. Oof. Yeah, no Beth here. <laughs> no, so one thing that I. It's funny because I either read a review in 1992 and it stuck in my head. Um, or the same people keep saying the same things. I just remember reading something at the time about, like, Larry Mullen has changed the way he plays drums, you know, preparing for Octung Baby. Now he plays around the beat. And when I was reading articles, I saw some other reference, like, Larry Mullen plays around the beat. He's been listening to Cream. And, and it's, just, it's funny, because like, I think that's actually a pretty accurate way of the way he's playing on this record. Um... And it is really different from the way he's played on earlier U2 records, and really better. Um, you know, and I, I think like when this album, uh, the, the two things that really like make this album really good are like the beats he's laying down, and then what the Edge is doing over them. Yeah, I think and, that's. I mean, that's really the. I mean the the rhythm work in this album sounds it sounds almost electronic to me, which I mean it's yeah. like a compliment. Yeah, no, I know what but, you mean. But it sounds like, you know, it just it, it sounds like almost a, I don't know, like a DJ or something. It's really really impressive. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> what uh, what do you think of one? Well, I mean. So I think I think I would like it more. I, I like the song, and I actually really like the Johnny Cash version of it. I, I yes, I think that's I, I like that better at this point. I think. I mean, I, I and I was you know I was in high school when this came out, but I have this like this feeling that this thing was like a staple for like middle school dances. Yeah. And and so that's that I don't know that just feels a little weird to me. Um, I mean it. It does hit on a lot of I feel like the notes of you know kind of the things that you're thinking about when you're you're in your in high school and yeah. in college. I mean, I thought. I mean, I, I think you know not not bitching. We were bitching earlier about the lyrics, the lyrics, um, and I actually think the lyrics in this one are pretty good. They are. I, I this isn't one that I've got singled out to to groan on. Um, there's one of the weaker oral sex references in this one where he just asks if he left a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, you could... Yeah, there's there's a couple things you could probably 
you know, if you're looking at it through that lens, it's like, <laughs> like I'm, you could pretty much, there's a lot of stuff you could, you could throw on there. I think. Right. No, that, 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 that was just a footnote I put in to irritate Mrs. Grinberg, 1992. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like, there's this weird thing where like, I, when I was younger, I thought this was like, the ultimate song, you know, it was like so heavy and so perfect. And uh, I, I think like you can't have something on a pedestal for that long without it devaluing. And, you know, I, I think that's why at this point I'm just like, well, I like Cash's version better. Yeah, I mean, it is a really good song. I mean, there's no, yeah. that's, it just, the thing that, and it's probably not fair to compare it to, the Johnny Cash version, because Johnny Cash just has that, like, like you feel his voice when he sings. Yeah. And you, that's, Bono's voice is great, but it just doesn't have that, like, texture that, that Cash's voice has. Yeah. You know, and I guess, like, to give credit where credit is due, you do have to give you two credit that, you know, Johnny Cash wasn't... Uh, he was kind of at a career low point when they recorded Zeropa and, and they're still like, hey, let's have him come and sing a song. And like, you know, I don't know. That was that was a cool move worthy of recognition. And maybe that's why he ended up recording one. Yeah, I mean, prescient too, because that would have been, Zeropa would have been only a few years before American won. Right? Yeah, it's like right, right on the verge I so you know I, t I was talking earlier about just the arrangements. I think one is this is a song where like just the the shit the edge does is so like just subtle and you know just this series of like little stacked textures that it's just I, you know I, I don't know if he like came up with that or if this was like some collaboration between him Lanois and Eno, um, but it's just it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, he really, it, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the good analogy, but it's, it, it's like that, like that perfect cocktail that just has like all these different notes in it that yeah. isn't like, you know, like when you're, when you're 20, you're looking for that guitar solo that just like, you know, the, the face melting guitar solo. Yeah. You know, and this is like, this is like just a more refined kind of product of, of just, just sort of. You know, like you don't even notice it unless you're looking for it. Yeah, totally. I did just remember one thing I meant to bring up earlier um, when you were saying that, like, this song, uh, that a lot of this album, but the song in particular, hits all of the concerns that are in your head when you're a kid. And it does hit me that, that I think you're right, and I think that's part of why it works. But that's also, like, <laughs> that's kind of a condemnation that it's like you know this is grown men who are at least 13 years into a recording career and like they've captured the mind <laughs> I, I guess I don't look at it as a condemnation okay. I mean, you know like like you know nobody reads Catcher in the Rye and they're like boy that J.D. Salinger what a fucking creepy old man fair enough Fair enough. You know, I think I think you kind of experience art through your through the lens of the time. Yeah. And maybe that's why I think that is that you know this when I was listening to it I was a 
16 year old kid yeah yeah that that makes sense sorry mr challenger so, uh, <laughs> i think well I mean, so there, there's been kind of a pushback catcher in the rye like i noticed it's its reputation has kind of nosedived for in the past five years um, and, and it might be recovering now, but I know there was a stretch of like. No, it's a it's a weird fucking book. It is a weird book. I I don't I, I like it. I I when it was nose diving, I think people were. I you know there's it's the apostasy thing again. Yeah. It's like you've got to establish your cred by, you know, stabbing one of the idols. I will tell you though that it gets even better if you read nine stories. I've never read nine stories. Not enough of a Lisa Loeb fan. <laughs> I'm Boom! A, I'm a huge Lisa Loeb fan. <laughs> That's not true, but uh, I do think. I mean, you know, that, that's just sort of an interesting thing. Like I, uh, you know, like everybody remembers of our generation. I think remembers Lisa Loeb. Yeah. And basically, I think it's for one song. Yeah, but it was a pretty good song. Yeah. I just it, it's just as interesting to me that like. If you, if you, I don't know if that's the case now with so many more outlets, but yeah. you know, most people could probably, if they heard that song, they'd go, "Yep, it's Lisa Loeb." Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories. What do you think the rest of Nine Stories is doing right now? <laughs> like, was that an actual band or was that a? I think so. Wasn't it just her and a guitar? Was there that song? Well, there was probably uh, the video was, I think, just her. I haven't heard the song in, you know decades so I don't remember what else was going on but it there was probably other stuff happening other than just her and and an acoustic there's probably a set of people right now trading on dining out on the fact that I mean I I don't want to pull rank but uh, I was in that stories (laughs) that reminds me so this has nothing to do with anything but uh, Rebecca was at an estate sale over the weekend and um, she was you know just in line like waiting in line to go into the estate sale and was talking to this guy who you know, was in line next to her who was a local musician and he like made this big deal of like you know mentioning you know and like doing the like look for reaction that yeah you know he's in a band and uh it's pretty cool you know their drummer used to be the drummer for uh for Everclear maybe you've heard of him and she made she made a point of not reacting, and he just got like more and more agitated that she wasn't excited about you know the ex drummer of Everclear. Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean honestly, it's a pretty deep pull. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but especially like then we, we we looked it up, and it turns out Everclear has like a Spinal Tap level number of drummers. So like, I don't know. Um, yeah, we're pretty far afield. It's like, I, I feel good. I think we're going to get the bass player from Tripping Daisy. <laughs> Fuck. In the Twin Cities, like, I, there is probably a former member of, of Soul Asylum in you know the band that I'm kind of putting together now, just because everyone in town has played. I probably, like, went to sleep one night and just played with Soul Asylum in my sleep. I, I mean, I, I think there's probably somebody within five blocks of your house that was in Soul Asylum. I, I think that is there's a good chance that that's literally true like I think that's quite possible um what do you think about Until the End of the World yeah uh, so 
this is my this this is the first thing that came to my mind is like I feel like this is what it would be like to be at a cocktail party with Thomas Malthus. <laughs> like <laughs> not a not a take I saw coming. Well, I just that's that was the first thing that came to my mind. Okay. Like, you were talking about the end of the world. Yeah. Like, shut up. Shut up about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um so, well, so like, do you? So, okay, I get here, uh, a theme I was going to bring in, um, and I guess th- this is probably something I picked up in uh, high school English independent study. Um, but this is a super super Catholic that's album. Weird flex, but yeah, uh, you know, that's Blair High School diploma, motherfucker. <laughs> Um, so this album is just like very Catholic. If you start scratching, yeah, you don't have to scratch very far. It's it's pretty much on the surface with just like a light coat of dust. And like this song is Judas talking to Jesus. And uh, I don't know, like yeah. top that Thomas Malthus. Yeah, think of another dead economist. I'll, uh, <laughs> um, but I, and I mean, like that's I, I guess. Yes, I think I, I guess my. I, I did not pick up on that at all. Just be, I think because you know I I wasn't raised Catholic, and I think people I shouldn't say people. Some people who were raised Catholic have like a sort of a hyper tuned sensitivity to that that yeah. I just don't possess. I mean, I think I, I think as a song, it's a good song. Um, it it just is when you start to read the lyrics, it just gets dark. It's pretty dark. That's um, you know. Of course, because it's Judas. Um, I I think you know the, the very first note I have on this one is just that it's a fucking jam. Because I think this is a fucking jam. Well, it's I a good it's is, a good song. I um the, the the intro to this I like the first thirty seconds of this song might be like the best this band has ever been instrumentally. Just the way it like you know it starts with this like kind of looping bass line and like weird drums kick in and then the edge does weird shit over it and like it's just it and then it builds to like this riff that is actually like really simple um I don't know it's just it's them doing their instrumental shit as well as they ever do it would you say it's better than the the portion of their career where they straddled the line between Joy Division and the Rolling Stones (laughs) You've been waiting with that in your pack. I have had that in my brain for like a month. Okay, but so it's you. You set me up nicely there, um, because like so you know that intro, you can kind of see both of those bands in the space of the opening of this song. It's like that intro part until the big riff really is kind of Joy Division-y. And then the main like that that riff that like powers the song is just the edge like playing a an E chord on three strings and then like pulling one string on and off and it's kind of a Keith Richards move. Yeah, it's exactly like it's like literally what Keith Richards does for Phil's all the time. Um, You know, and and it's this thing where like you can look at it and you can like you can shit on the edge. You know, from that direction, and be like, "Wow, nice fucking riff, asshole." <laughs> but or you can flip it around, and you're like, "Wow, he like he gets that out of, you know, this 
really really basic guitar thing and i think as i get older i like subtle i i more appreciate the subtlety than yeah than kind of the you know the the wowie zowie to paraphrase a pavement album yeah yeah well you know so uh, that actually like led my brain down this other just hallway of like i as soon as you said pavement i just i thought like well you know I bet pavement fucking hate you too. You know, just like with their, the whole like pavement like, <laughs> just general the, the whole con- pavement condescending thing. nature. Yeah, but um, you know, but the flip side of that is like, you know, and when I was in like indie apostasy state, like I you know was way more sympathetic to pavement. But the thing I've kind of realized is like, the whole pavement thing is a fucking pose too, and like it's preposterous to be like well. A pose is fine if you're posing to be a slacker, um, you know, who also does incredibly complicated recording projects and, you know, does, like, multi-city tours and, you know, like, like clearly the whole, like, yeah, man, fuck everything has to be full of shit because you don't have a career if you're as nihilistic as they present. Um, So it's just, I don't know, it's funny to me that, like, in the... So I, I, I'm defending U2 more than I expected tonight. But it's funny to me that, like, the shitting on U2 angle of attack is often that, like, they're pretentious. But, like, doing anything in music makes you pretentious. Like, you have to be pretentious just to do anything. And I think some of the some of the shitting on U2 just comes from the fact that, I mean, they were a very big band for a very long time. Yeah. So there just is that sort of, and, and you know, like it when this album came out, for lack of a better term, it was cool to like you two. Yeah. You know, like later in their career, it was kind of not cool to like you two. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the same inverted thing that happened with the Stones, where like for most of our adult lives, it's kind of been. You know, there have been, like, different gradations of it, but it, it's generally been the case that, like, it's lame to like the Stones because, oh, man, they're fucking dinosaurs. And, uh, you know, like, it, it's more complicated. It's like, they, yeah, they're old and they're not young and hungry, but, like, what the fuck else are they supposed to do? Just, like, go off to an island and live in a cave? Yeah, I, and I, th- I think, I mean, the, the interesting thing... And you too probably deals with this too. Is that when people show up for their shows, like they don't want to hear, you know, how to dismantle an atom bomb, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and so it's just an interesting thing where you're like, the fans want to hear your old classic material. Yeah. yeah, I think the last time they toured, they, it was one of those tours where they just played the Joshua Tree in, in order. Which to me would, well, I don't know, you know, like, it's easy for me to say, like, oh, that would feel, like, terrible, but maybe that would feel fucking awesome. Maybe maybe you feel like, hey, we created this unified work of art that people love. And, yeah, and it, it it allows them to do it as a as a full album. I remember when I saw the Pixies play Doolittle straight through, and it was fantastic. I bet. Like, it, I think rock in general has this problem, or had this problem. This might be getting better, like as you know, the the, just as everybody gets older. But for a long time, I feel like rock had this problem where it didn't know how to deal with longevity and like you know all of the formative ideas about what what rock was supposed to be were based on very young people, 
playing to very young people. And, like, you know, that was fine in the 60s and even into the 70s. Um, but it just kind of gets to this point then where, like, people stick around and, you know, at, at one point there was just there was no template for what does it mean to be a 50-year-old rock musician. Right. And, you know, and I, I don't think that's the case now, but... Yeah, I mean, unless you're the Beastie Boys, um, you know, they're they're going to be ebbs and flows. Yeah. Well, even then, like, Hot Sauce Committee is... <laughs> but part one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you haven't heard the other parts. True. I mean... <laughs> Everyone knows this. The Hot Sauce Committee is a parabola. <laughs> it's conceptual. Um, oh, okay. So one thing I wanted, a, a different rabbit hole I wanted to... S- to throw down do you remember that this song until the end of the world also appeared on a soundtrack that was a big deal like around you know around our senior year of high school um to a movie called until the end of the world that was a whim i don't know if it's whim or vim it's either whim wenders or vim vendors i don't know i don't care i'm i'm a midwestern american um but it had a it was this movie that was totally baffling, but it had a soundtrack that had this song, a song by R.E.M., I think one of the last, I think it was one of the last Talking Heads songs, um, a Lou Reed song. It was like, wow. this, yeah, it was like the underground version of the singles song. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've never heard that. It, uh, yeah. Or, or seen the movie. Don't see the movie. <laughs> um, and... You know, really, like, all the songs that are good, you've probably heard somewhere else. So, But it, it's just, it is this thing that I remember, like, you know, when the single soundtrack had created this sense of, like, oh, the, there are important soundtracks. There was this one that was like, oh, wow. It's, yeah, I mean, that, that I, I don't see, I mean, I still think, I'm trying to think if I'd, uh, you know, I feel like the Garden State soundtrack was, was sort of one that was... Yeah introduced a lot of people to a lot of different types of music or well not different types of music but a lot of new artists yeah and there have been a couple rushmore i feel like had a really good soundtrack oh man all of wes anderson's like that's i think that's the thing of his that i like the most consistently is like they always have fucking killer soundtracks yeah no he's and i I think i like wes anderson more than you do but um, i'm not opposed i I haven't seen the new one. I yeah, me either. But, but I I'm I, I got no beef. Um. Oh, one other note I got on until the end of the world. Oral sex watch. Um. In my dreams, I was drowning my sorrows. My sorrows learned to swim, surrounding me, going down on me, spilling over the brim. Mrs. Grinberg could not refute that one. That, that's true. You know, that was that was me dropping the pen and saying case closed. <laughs> I mean, it, it back to your Judas, like your well, Judas analogy. I mean, like I don't know. I mean, does that does that cloud your? Uh... Okay, so a couple of things on that that I think are actually pretty interesting. I didn't make up the Judas thing. That I, I got that from Bono. So like, I can't claim any like great perception. He was. I saw some interview where he was talking about the song and said, like, this is Judas talking. So, like... Well, so... just And I'll, I'll let you finish here, but but this is why people think Bono is pretentious. Yeah. Like, this is this is exhibit A. For sure. But, you know, but at the same time, like, 
he is the leading authority on what he was trying True. to say. Sure. Um, you know, and, and yes, it is pretentious <laughs> as hell to be like, I'm going to write a song from the point of view of Judas. Um, but the whole, like, with all the Catholic coding of this album, it really occurs to me, like, between, you know, an oral sex reference in the Judas song and, like, an entire song that might be, is at least partly about porn, um, it just, it, it really hits me that, like, in a way that I wasn't aware of when I was growing up Catholic, there seemed to be, like, different ways of being Catholic, and, you know, I know that's, like, a really basic statement, but, like, you know, I was raised in this really strict, like, these are the rules and you will follow them or you are fucked. Um, and I think Bono seems to be flying the flag for this other, maybe more interesting and more livable type of Catholicism that seems to be saying more like, you're gonna get blown and blow people, but, um, you know, like, you are an imperfect sinner who can be forgiven. I, I don't know, just like, you know, like, he's... The fact that he's putting all this, like, I am so louche, and I am so Catholic on the same record, um, you know, that's just, that's a mindset that did not exist in the type of Catholicism I was raised in. And maybe I would have stuck with it if, you know, probably not, but <laughs> <laughs> I would have stuck with it longer, maybe. Yeah, I I mean, I, I feel like this is where my Protestant upbringing really lets me down because I, I don't have that, like, deep-seated, like, you know, dogma. Oh, man, boy, are, are, are you missing the fun of a lifetime of, of guilt and... Guilt and shame? Yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds uh, awesome. It's, but, a, it's the spice that makes life exciting. But, uh, but, yeah, I just, I do not have it. I saw someone today... I could not believe this. This is a total, well, a moderate departure. I saw someone on Twitter today being a weird fucking chest-beating Lutheran in a way that I have, I've never seen. You know, and this is like living among Lutherans, you know, for decades. Like, I've never seen someone be like, fucking Lutherans kick ass the way, you know, like, like my, my perception of the general Lutheran vibe is that it's just like, you know, we're doing our thing, we're quiet, we're not gonna make a big fucking deal about it. Like, like yeah, is that right? Like, yeah, it's like a mid-sized Mazda. Yeah, like not you know, like, like it's it's good. It's just not, you know. This the, the, the specific thing that this person was doing, there was like there was like this meme of that purported to show like a Christmas scene, and then you know. I don't know, say like, okay, well, this Christmas tree, you know, this was actually appropriated from this pagan ceremony, and this these gifts giving, that was appropriated from this pagan ceremony, and this, and the, the person who was being like Lutheran triumphant was like, not only is this historically inaccurate, even if it was true, we'd need to just admit that like, Martin Luther took all this pagan shit and made it great. Lutherans, t you know, Lutheran appropriation is the best approach, and I'm just like, what the fuck? I've never seen this. What? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I feel like that's more of an indication of what's going on with that person. I think you're right. I've never, I mean... I know Lutheran pastors who are not this, like, chest-beatingly Lutheran. Then, I, I mean, 
it's like I, I don't want to you know I don't, I don't want to piss off half the state I live in but like I mean like Martin Luther's not that big a deal right <laughs> like I don't know oh, um you want to take a break yeah, before we move on to the back half All right, we uh, we're back. Um, got any wild horses with you? I just wrote "Hey, hey, sha la la." Okay. Dot dot dot. I, I fucking love that 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 is where you went because uh, one of the things I had singled out. Um, do you remember my friend Dale? Yeah. Um, so you know, freshman year when I was like still like the back half of my super fan phase. He would just fucking taunt me. I'd be listening to this record and this song, and he would just fucking taunt me by like staring me in the face, just like deadpan, straight face, going just like, "Hey, hey, sha la la, hey, hey," and like that is the most effectively I've yeah. ever been trolled. Like I would just get so pissed at that. It's. I was hoping that re- reading through it that I that I could view it as like a diss track for the Rolling Stones, but <laughs> like I just. I just don't think it's that good a song. No, I, it's not. And Emma, I agree with Dale. The like, sha la la. It's just hey hey, sha la la. I mean, you take you take your you take your shots. You, you know, know, not all winners. I take the good with the bad. This is, I think, aside from the hey hey, sha la la. There's also um, this is just a song that has a lot of. Examples for uh, Bono's voice being better than his lyrics. You know, you've got Ah, the hunter will sin for your ivory skin. Don't turn around your gypsy heart. I. Yeah, it's, it's like it just. I mean, I know it's not racist, but it just like sounds a little bit racist. I, I think I think gypsy is kind of not. Yeah, it's pejorative. Yeah, it is not a uh, not really a polite word anymore. Um. All that said, like I don't like this song. Unless you're Gogo Bordello, then apparently, you know, like they're at least from Eastern Europe and like have a little more perspective than you know. Like I'm ready to give them credit that they know more context around it than than I do. Um, the one thing I'll go to bat for with this song is that like I love the opening again. We're just it's you know. If the edge usually isn't hitting big chords on this album, um, this one he is, and it sounds fucking righteous. You know, it sounds like he's like controlling this lava flow or something, and it's that part is really good. Well, I feel I feel like I came away with from this listen with a lot more respect for the edge than maybe I had before. Yeah, I he yeah, you know, like as part of my. U2 reclamation project I guess I've, I've really like come to respect him did you see um, that movie It Might Get Loud I did see it and I specifically remember being like why the hell is the edge part of this movie <laughs> I you know like I mean I think what he does is different from those other two guys but in a way that I think is maybe not that bad. Like like Jimmy Page just playing, you know, playing blues guitar basically 
makes sense given his you know like that's when he came up that was the cutting edge of like the electric guitar and you know like Jack White's not like slavishly just copying the past but he's you know he's extremely informed by the past but I think I don't know it's, I, I respect that the edge is like I'm going to try to play this instrument in a really different way and yeah that's there's there's something he said in that movie about how he tries not to play more than three strings at a time um, to get a cleaner sound. That is like that changed the way I play guitar. Like that is really useful information. And like if you if you like tried to build your approach to the guitar around that, it will take you good places. Yeah, like that's. I mean that that just reflecting on that movie. I I didn't. I mean, I haven't seen it in a number of years, but I, oops, you know, I think, I mean, Jack White is is a person that like you could plug him in and you could just listen to him because he just he just I don't know. I do think the way he approaches playing the electric guitar is just a little bit different than any one of his era. Yeah, and I mean, Jimmy Page is like that's that's his deal, right? Yeah. he's gonna he's gonna give you those huge guitar solos and. Yeah, but I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about Jimmy Page is like he is this case where he's not. What he's doing isn't different, you know. He's like, he's just. <laughs> it's actually a little bit too similar sometimes. Yeah, and it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also like everyone in London in the late '60s was trying to play exactly what Jimmy Page was playing. He just does it a lot better and more interestingly than, you know, most of everyone else who was there. Yeah, I mean, we were, ta- we were talking about subtlety before. Like, Jimmy yeah. Page is not your guy for subtlety, right? <laughs> no. Like, no. He's the, like, you know, he's the Trans Am, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Which I realize is a car that hasn't been manufactured in, like, 30 years. But still, well, you know, like, that's, a, a that's good, what I think of. A good metaphor will provide its own overtones. Yeah, like the, <laughs> you know, like the T-tops and the, the big, like... Hood decal, yeah, big, like big bird on the yeah. front, like that's what I think about. Fucking Burt Reynolds, right? Smokey the Bandit. That's respect. Drink to that. I'm thirsty in Minneapolis, that's and there's right. beer in Indianapolis <laughs> or Annapolis. Um, okay, so it's funny uh, moving to so cruel. We're done with the Shalalas? I, I got nothing else to say with this. Uh, uh, do you? Like, I guess I, I don't mean to preempt. <laughs> nope, that was the sum total of my notes. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so, like, I feel like so cruel. Like, I've got that flagged as like a lesser song for the album. But um, it's interesting to me that you said that you know earlier you were talking about this record kind of being plugged into the concerns of. You know, uh, a young person. It's like you know. I just I remember when I was like this lovelorn high school kid. I thought you know, so cruel was you know th- that yeah. was my exact read of the song. Is like this is what is inside my tortured heart. Yeah, I mean, I think. Well, I mean, when you're at least that, but probably not for everybody. But for me, <laughs> that was sort of an awkward age. So, you know, when you think about like, yeah, and the lyrics that I flagged were like the. I disappeared in you. You disappeared from me. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that I, I remember that exact feeling of, of being like, you know, like 
super interested in somebody and them not giving a shit yeah. about me. So yeah. like that always brings me back to that like like that feeling. Yeah, yeah. It it really does. Like I guess yes, the song has its finger on the pulse of young angst. Um you know, again, like it's got really cool guitar texture work going that like slowly builds up and they arranged the fuck out of this. Yeah, I mean, I the other note I have is that it's like the teenage lovers lament ballad with a dancier beat. Yeah, that's yes. You know, again, cool drum part too. Like, that's, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to make someone someone playing the drums live sound like a dancey kind of beat. Yeah, like, that's just hard to do. Yeah, I and I wonder, like, I know there were some drum machines in the room when they recorded but I don't know how much of it made to the album I don't know like I think it's mostly Mullen playing yeah it, uh, it uh, I, I do think there is some like there, they must have had some and I can't remember who exactly it was but somebody was listening to a, a lot of electronica it's supposed to be The Edge yeah. I, I remember all the, the coverage of that like, yeah. oh my god he, he listens to Helmet <laughs> so, I, I mean, this is this is a diversion, but I, I don't know if you've ever listened to a helmet before. But like, I tried. Hel- you know. Helmet's a really like guitar-oriented band. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's. I mean, it's not necessarily a good band, but it's like. It, no, I think I so like the parameters for like what was electronica were a lot different. It's idea. like yeah, he's really been listening to a lot of uh, electronica. He's got the new Rollins band album. Yeah. <laughs> There's a synthesizer in the background. Watch out. Um, the fly. The fly. Okay, so you you are. Have you heard the fly, Keith? Have I heard? That was the that was the shout out to uh, oh. Aaron Aaron Davich who I haven't talked Gosh. to in thirty years but U uh, <laughs> two super fan Minnesota High School I wonder if he still is I would not even know how to begin <laughs> begin to contact him to ask him that. fair enough um, I think this is a fucking apex jam I think this is you know and like I can't be I can't be objective about it like this I just. I, this fucking melted my brain when it was the lead single for the album. Um, it you know it fused.